This episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Emporium Arcade Bar. Emporium hosts awesome game, beer, food, and live music events daily in Wicker Park and Logan Square. Visit EmporiumChicago.com for more info. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Arnault, and this is part one of a special night of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast, recorded at Chicago's Adler Planetarium during their July Adler After Dark event, a monthly 21 and up after hours gathering that is incredibly cool. Uh, the theme of their night was Save Pluto, and so for our recording, we took the prompt Runt of the Litter, which is basically what Pluto is, uh, right? Uh, yeah. So we had a ton of fun taking our show there and got some great stories from Nerdalogs members, Planetarium staff, and some new friends too. On this episode, you'll hear from Chris Geiger, Mark Hammergren, Veronica Burns, Michael Gifford, Robert Rowlings, and Katie Johnston-Smith. Plus, you'll get some music from me, Dwight Hassler, Jim Snedeker, and Claire Friedman. Uh, just a small note, this was the first time we recorded through a soundboard, which definitely has benefits, but some of the mics were a little hot for the musical segments, so at points it gets a little peaky. Uh, I've tried to minimize that as much as possible, but in the end I felt the songs were pretty cool, so I kept them in, and I hope you enjoy them. Uh, friends... If you are a West Coast person or are otherwise traveling there, we'll be out at PAX in Seattle from August 28th through 31st. Uh, we're hanging out with Cards Against Humanity, selling our brand new card game Fisticuffs, and doing some shows, including a Your Stories. Uh, it's going to be a wildly good time, and if you want to come see us, that would be pretty cool. Look for more details on the event on our website and Facebook in the next few days. Uh, I also want to again thank the Chicago Podcast Co-op for all their support of the show. And again, shout out to our sponsor for the episode, Emporium Arcade Bar, which is a super fun place to go. Uh, make sure to check out all the other co-op podcasts like the Nerdalog Zone, MBSing, and Talking Games. And outside the co-op, listen to our representation of the fantastic post-apocalyptic rock and roll radio show, The Catch-Up, every Thursday. We certainly are busy podcasters. Uh, but I think that's all I've got for now on the business front, so enjoy the show. Every night, we do songs that fit the theme of the evening. The theme tonight, because it's Pluto night, is Runt of the Litter. And so Claire suggested that we should do songs by artists who are small. So here are some of those. But no, not anymore Cause here comes that familiar feeling The Friday's famous for Yeah, I'm looking for some action And it's out there somewhere You can feel the electricity All in the evening air And it may just be more of the same But sometimes you want to go Where everyone knows your name So I guess I'll have to wait and see I'm just gonna let something brand new happen to me And it's alright It's alright It's alright It's alright It's alright Bright lights and the big city It belongs to us tonight Tonight 
But there's something about Saturday night You can't say what you won't do Cause you know that you just might I'm alive this evening It was love at first sight This Saturday and every Saturday For the rest of my life And everyone's standing in line Yeah, looking good Looking for a real good time So I'll never have to wonder if I'll have someone to share all of this with And it's all right 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 Bright lights and the big city It belongs to us tonight Tonight Yes, I need it. Everybody does. Cocktails and conversation, music and making love. And it's all right. Everybody, that was some CeeLo. All right, guys, we are here with a bunch of stories. We've got six storytellers tonight who are... Oh, Claire, Claire, the song's over. Claire. It's going to be okay. So we just added Jim on on lead guitar, and me and Claire are doing more percussive stuff, so Claire is, like, working out of her system right now, I guess. (laughs) So so our first storyteller of the night is a member of the Nerdalogs here to start us off right. This is Mr. Chris Geiger. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you. It's a distinct honor to be here today. Uh, as a nerd, I've always had a dream of speaking with some authority on a subject at a great hall of learning such as this. The Adler Planetarium is a wonderful place, and I uh, very much enjoy spending time here. My girlfriend and I have fallen asleep uh, during the stargazing presentations upstairs, not once but twice, uh, thanks to the air conditioning uh, the semi-reclining seats, very pleasant vistas, the smooth voice of the narrator. I, I mean, I wish I could bottle that up and uh, sell it to insomniacs. I, I remember my mind being blown quite often, however, especially the, the penny demonstration was most notable, only to be lulled back to sleep almost immediately <laughs> by the dulcet tones of, and here we see a nebula. But again, it's a great pleasure to be here to talk about a subject that I care about very passionately. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm at best a comedian, fledgling game designer. My father, he worked for NASA most of his life, and while I didn't inherit his love for engineering, I certainly inherited his love for space. Uh, We talked with a certain glee over the photos taken of Pluto recently, yet while I think it's great that we're at an event titled Save Pluto, as it certainly doesn't get the respect it deserves, I feel that we're overlooking one of the most important bodies in our orbit, and that is Uranus. Now, I know, I know Uranus has a funny name. It sounds like urine. <laughs> but if we can get past the naming of it, you'll find that Uranus is a majestic celestial being in its own right. Uranus is roughly 14.5 times the size of Earth. And while that makes it the least massive of the other giants out there, Uranus is really quite large. Uh, did you know that Uranus revolves around the sun once Every 84 Earth years, that means your anus will see all of the sun once in your lifetime, unless you live quite long, which means your anus might see all of the sun in a little bit more. If your anus was tanning, it would take quite a while. Now, of course, your anus wouldn't tan easily since it's composed mostly of liquid and gas and a lot of methane and ammonia. Now, we would know more, but to date, Your anus has only been explored by one probe in all of existence. We don't send many probes to Uranus, but I would like to. I would like to probe Uranus. 
and see what secrets it holds. I would like to shine a light on your anus and really figure it out. Now, we talk about saving Pluto, but why aren't we talking about saving your anus? When will we take the next big step and say, your anus is worth exploring and devote the time, resources, and energy to making your anus a priority? Now, when will we, as a society, elevate your anus to the status it rightly deserves, the throne, your anus, seated on the throne of the solar system? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I'm just not into your anus. And that's fine. You can continue to look up at the stars and snooze lightly thinking about nebulas and other planets. But what keeps me awake at night are not the Plutos or Saturns. I stay awake at night thinking about your anus. I fantasize about your anus and all of its unknown treasures. I wake up in the morning and the first thing on my mind is your anus. And a day doesn't go by where I don't think about the enormous cavernous mysteries of your anus. And I wish other people in this room did too. Now, your anus should be the most important thing to you or anyone else. You must embrace your anus before it's too late. Because what if, before we rigorously explored and plumbed the depths of your anus, the methane and ammonia built up to such a level that your anus exploded? And what impact would your anus exploding have on our world and our solar system? Would your anus exploding take it off its throne? And how would we clean up the mess left behind by your anus's explosion? The papers would certainly be flush with details about your anus then, but I'd love it if the papers would cover your anus now. In light of this... Today, I'm starting my own event called Save Uranus, where we will hold symposiums about Uranus every hour of the day, about Uranus's texture, about future explorations of Uranus, and see what Uranus says about mankind. Now, so please, say it with me now. Save Uranus. Save Uranus. Save Uranus. Save Uranus. Save... Thank you, Joe. According to Joe, I'm... Also, remember the underlogs. Uh, I'm to understand that your anus sounds kind of like your anus. <laughs> I thought it was two words. I apologize deeply in this distinguished hall of learning for my words. They offended you. If you'll excuse me. I'd like to move on to talk about my other favorite planet, the planet Penis, which is a... What was that? Oh, it's pronounced Venus. I thought the V was silent and sounded like a P. That really makes what the rest of what I wrote here sound pretty obscene. Oh, Jesus. I imagine there isn't a planet called Poopiter either, is there? No? Thank you all for your time. Chris Geiger, thank you. I don't know if that was brilliant or horrifying or, or both. I think it was both. All right, we've got a couple guests from the Adler Planetarium itself here tonight. It's coming up first, the astronomer and director of the Astroscience Workshop, Mark Hammergren. Hi, everybody. Uh, I have to follow that. <laughs> All right. I am so glad I don't work on the gas giants. <laughs> uh, in, instead, I'm, I'm one of the astronomers here. My specialty is asteroids. So talking about the ruin to the litter, talk about Pluto feeling bad because of its size. There's poor Pluto. It's about 1,473 miles across. The asteroids that my team and I look at start at maybe a few miles across in size and go down all the way. Smallest one we've looked at is about four meters across. It's a chunk of space rock, literally small enough to fit inside this room up here, filling the stage behind me. And we look at these things so we can track them and uh, make sure that they're not going to hit the Earth anytime soon. Maybe figure out what they're made of so we can use them as space resources or know what to do if one comes our way. So uh, the story, though, is not about the asteroids we've been looking at recently. It goes back a little bit further than that, about six years, for a special connection I made with one particular space rock, this rock named 2008 TC3. <laughs> Lovely lyrical names these things have. 
So it's about six years ago. Uh, it was a night in October 2008. Uh, an astronomer, Rich Kowalski, in uh, Arizona at the Catalina Sky Survey. It's one of these surveys looking for hazardous asteroids. He was double-checking automatic detections on the screens. And he found one, confirmed it was a real object, just a little point of light moving on the screen. From how fast it was moving on the screen, he figured this one was pretty close. So he took his uh, observations, put them together, made the measurements, sent them off like you do with all of these things to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, the, the Minor Planet Center there. It's the International Clearinghouse for Data. They get this uh, stuff there, process it automatically. They fit an orbit to the points and figure out where the asteroid is and where it's going. And sometimes the orbits are known so poorly that you really can't exclude the possibility of a collision with Earth. And there the chances get to be something like 20,000 to 1 against. And this time, though, when they spat out the orbit and came back, it uh, caused him to sit right back up in his chair because the chance of a collision was 100% was a sure thing. So next question, of course, is, well, when is it going to hit? And the answer was 19 hours. This is a real story. So, uh, of course, this made astronomers all over the world take notice. And so asteroid scientists uh, got to their telescopes. Those who were there already slewed over to that area of the sky and took repeated observations. Over the next 19 hours, they took something like 600 measurements of position really nailed down where this thing was headed, and to the point where they could figure out where it was going to hit within about a kilometer. And the answer to that was middle of the night, right in the Nubian desert of northern Sudan, so out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so the authorities uh, notified whoever they could find around there. And at the appointed time and place, this space rock, luckily, it was only about four meters across, like that one we had looked at, about maybe 10, 13 feet, came in, appointed time and place, burned up in the atmosphere, broke up into thousands of rocks. It wasn't until a couple months afterwards that a researcher from uh, NASA and uh, some uh, Sudanese scientists, they mounted an expedition, went out to the middle of the desert, middle of nowhere, and they found little tiny bits of space rock. About a year after that, there was a conference that was organized about this interesting event, And uh, so, you know, this conference was going to be held in Khartoum, Sudan. Now, Sudan, you think about that, you think maybe Darfur. You think about the civil war that's been going on in the south there for 30 years. You think about maybe Sudan hosting Osama bin Laden through most of the 1990s. And you think, uh, this is a place for a professional conference? Uh, So the opportunity came up, and I said, yeah, sure, let me go to that. Because not only were we going to have a workshop about this asteroid, we were going to go out into the desert and look for these space rocks. I'd never, ever found a meteorite, which is a piece of asteroid. Never found one before in my life. This was my chance. So we went out there. It was a a real adventure, these big desert buses and uh, going out through the sands, the, the great sand road out there. And we get out there, set up tents. And fantastic time. And uh, I'm talking to the Sudanese students along on this trip. And uh, they say, ah, where are you from? And I say, ah, I'm from Chicago. And the student's face falls. He just collapses and he says, oh, Chicago. Uh, Here in Chicago is not so safe. (laughs) Yeah, so we, we, you know, search it on the desert there. And uh, there I was looking along looking around, and there in the sand, I see this black rock. I rush up over to it, and we weren't supposed to touch it, just draw a circle around it and wait for the recovery crew to come. But I looked up close, and here it was, a space rock, a chunk of rock from asteroid 2008 TC3. It was the first of about eight meteorites that I found during the course of those two weeks. So, you know, that one, even though I I didn't find it, I didn't find the asteroid, I found the meteorites that came from it. And that'll always be special to me. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. That was great. Chris, how do you feel now? Jesus. 
<laughs> Coming next to the stage, a friend of the Nerdalogs. Uh, she just com- uh, just completed, I think, right your your uh, PhD in chemistry, and she made part of her dissertation a comic book called Atomic Size Matters. This is Veronica Burns. So I'm gonna open with something that Ira Glass said, and I'll just paraphrase it because you all probably have read it on like Tumblr or Twitter or whatever. Um, but it was the thing that he was talking about, uh, that point in your life where you're on your way to becoming um, an expert or really good at something, and you are not good at it yet, um, but you have good taste. So you're just completely dissatisfied with everything that you're producing. <laughs> and it's just a really frustrating moment. Um, and it, it can cause a lot of stress on a person who's who's really on the right track, but um, is currently not, you know, achieving their, their greatest. Um, and so this is, this is my story of, (laughs) of that moment in my journey to becoming a chemist. Um, so I took a lot of college classes, uh, where they tell you exactly how to do an experiment. And an experiment should mean that you don't know the answer, but Obviously, they're rolling it out like a recipe, like follow step one, step two, and they know what the answer is. (laughs) So I always found those classes really frustrating because there was no mystery to solve. It was, I was going to just be graded on how my answer matched their answer, which always seemed really stupid to me. So I went through a lot of those classes, and one of those classes was particularly memorable to me. It was this analytical class. Um, analytical chemistry and on the first day we got the syllabus and it was going to be three hours of lecture a week and 10 hours of lab so a lot of lab (laughs) and this class was one credit by the way it was horrible (laughs) Um, so I do my experiment and um, the the method of of presenting your results for the first experiment was an oral exam. So you go and you sit in the professor's office, and it's just one-on-one, and he asks you a bunch bunch of questions. Um, So I do my experiment, and I make a PowerPoint, because everything in academia is PowerPoint-based, for better or for worse. Um, And then I go to my professor's office, and I have my laptop, sit down. And let me just tell you, this professor is a big guy, I'm, I'm not that tall myself, but he was very tall and a former bodybuilder. So <laughs> he's just got that appearance of being like a giant wall of muscle and that huge like trapezius thing where your, your head and your shoulders kind of just make a triangle, <laughs> like the no-neck thing. Um, so, so that's the professor, and I'm sitting there across the table from him, and we have my laptop in between with the PowerPoint slides. And I'm, like, clicking through the PowerPoint and talking about my results, and he's asking me questions. And then, all of a sudden, my throat tightens up, and I burst into tears. Five minutes into the presentation, tears streaming down my face. It was, like, uh, anxious, couldn't breathe, like, panic attack-style tears. And I, I didn't know what was happening at the time. I was terrified, like crying, but didn't know why I was crying. Um, and this intimidating situation el- elicited this weird reaction in me. And there we were, like sitting with, um, with this laptop in between us. And, and he must have been really scared too, like probably just as scared as I was because a student is randomly crying in his office. Um, but he... Had it, had it together enough to uh, ask me if I wanted to reschedule. Um, so we did. <laughs> and I came back. You know, I had, I had, like, gone through my slides a couple of times, had a friend quiz me a few questions and whatever. And I came back to his office, and I was ready to go, ready to not cry. And I get into it, and I'm, like, getting through the data pretty well. And then I start crying again. Um... Yeah, <laughs> that was my feeling too. So I'm, I'm just like in tears again, but like I persisted through the rest of the presentation and it went okay, I guess, as well as it could go. Um, and then that was the first experiment. 
And then I had to do that 10 more times during the semester. And every single time, I cried and had a panic attack in front of this poor, poor man. Um, so eventually, like after the third or fourth experiment, um, he, he like put out a box of Kleenex and like a bottle of water. And he was, he was very nice, very nice about it, as nice as anyone could be. Um, but I got through the whole semester, and uh, I, I did okay in the class, I guess. <laughs> um, and at, this t- at the same time, you know, I'm going through my classes, but I also started to do um, independent research. And I was working on battery materials. I was making these new compounds that no one had ever made before, um, metal oxides. And I thought it was just the coolest thing. I was learning how to ask questions and how to um, answer those questions with, like, real data. And uh, I had to put together a a thesis, a senior thesis. And so the final defense of your senior thesis is to have your advisor read through your paper and then um, sit down with you and ask a bunch of questions. And unfortunately, my advisor was out of town um, at the time, he was on a long trip, and he wouldn't be back before graduation. Uh, but luckily, they got somebody to fill in. <laughs> and it was my analytical professor. <laughs> so I did the same thing. You know, I, I prepared, and I, like, thought through what questions. I had a friend go through it with me and everything. And, of course, like, I'm sitting in his office once again, across from the same big bodybuilder man, and um, he, he started asking me questions, and I got through it, and eventually it was over, and I didn't cry at all. Um, I knew the research like the back of my hand. Like, I thought about this stuff so hard. It was, it was mine. It was mine, my, my baby, you know? Um, I really felt some ownership over it. And, uh, I think that was the difference between all those oral exams and, um, and my thesis defense. Uh, and I discovered that, yeah, I have some fear and anxiety, but, um, my love for discovery can, can help me overcome that. So... Thank you, Veronica. What if I told you that professor is here right now? Let's pull back the... No, not true. Ladies and gentlemen, coming next to the stage, essayist Michael Gifford. Thank you, Eric. Where do I squeeze? There we are. Okay. So the last two people were great scientists, and I am an idiot, okay? To just make it clear how stupid I am, and perhaps how inappropriate it is, when I was young, I would sing the song, Joy to the World. My father is a Methodist minister, and he sang, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare in Ruth. And I asked my dad, I was 18, and I said, who is Ruth? And he looked at me. He said, what are you talking about? I said, Ruth in the song. He went, in room, you idiot, in room. This is where I stand. So, I'm honored to be speaking here at the Adler Planetarium because it's a bastion of education and higher learning that benefits the world. I, on the other hand, am the guy who ate Totino's pizza rolls from Walgreens the last three nights for dinner. So for me, this is a step up. When I was a little boy, my family would attend the Canfield Fair in Ohio, and my favorite activity was the piglet races. It was an event where baby pigs would be placed in a small track and run around in a circle for our amusement. 
One might call it the Kentucky Derby of Pig. It was 27 years ago, so I doubt they still do it for any of you animal lovers. But at the time, I loved the piglet races. There was a particularly cute spotted piglet named Seymour. Seymour was the clear runt of the litter. But that little piglet had gumption. And boy, could he run to the finish line to pile into that slop. Now, if memory serves me, Seymour the runt won every piglet race. So to take a quote from Charlotte's Reb, Seymour was some pig. Sidebar. One does not have to be as brilliant as Neil deGrasse Tyson to observe that I was not a cool kid in school. Note, Neil deGrasse Tyson was only one of two scientists I could think of. I thought it would be offensive to say Stephen Hawking because he's in a wheelchair. Jesus Christ. I used to have a very distinct side part in my hair. This being before distinct side parts were stylish. When I was made academic student of the month, they hung my senior picture in the school cafeteria. And with slicked hair and distinct side part, some ever so kind classmate said I resembled a young Hitler. They'd sig heil my face on the way through the lunch line to get pizza. Not exactly the Lenny Riefenstahl moment any awkward 17-year-old runt of a kid would ever ask for. <sighs> there was this one bully, we'll call him Doug, that really got under my skin. Doug wasn't some typical lunkhead bully, but himself was a wise ass who was too smart for his own good. I was fortunate to have been liked enough to never endure some grand, humiliating moment, but Doug's occasional daggers of verbal assaults really stung me as a young man. Almost ten years had passed since graduation, and I had recently joined Facebook. That might date me. I digress. Being a nerd, an enormous Harry Truman enthusiast, sub-sidebar, the coolest moment of my life was recently meeting Harry Truman's great-grandson, who is himself a professional model. Who would have thought? End of sub-sidebar. I put as my party affiliation, Truman Democrat, on Facebook. Well, wouldn't you know it, from under the rock where he resided, Doug had a fresh crack about me being a Truman Democrat. What? Well, at the age of 27, the buck stopped here. Haha. <laughs> and this runt was not going to tolerate a bully. And boy, did I write him a private message of rebuke that Clarence Darrow would have been proud of. That was a Chicago reference. Oh, my God. Well, with great pride, I strode over to share this exchange with my best friend, Ethan, and expected a symbolic, the nerds have won, sign of approval. Instead, Ethan, who's studying to be a therapist, bluntly stated, I think Doug was making a joke in a private message and that you may have totally overreacted and misread it. How could that be? Doug was clearly out to destroy me. Still, I couldn't be wrong. Doug was a jerk, girl. Well, Ethan stated, well, you're being a jerk too, so you should apologize. Ugh. So I slunked back home, logged on to Facebook like a mature adult, and wrote Doug an apology and explained why I had been so sensitive to his joke because of how he had put me down in school. 
Lo and behold, Doug wrote back and apologized to me. What? He said that he had always liked me and respected me and felt terrible that he had ever hurt my feelings. Now I felt like a doofus. End of sidebar. My mother and I talked on the phone recently, and she said that she identifies runts as survivors who have to work extra hard to persevere, like Pluto. But I didn't write about Pluto because I don't know anything. (laughs) I wonder sometimes, though, if Seymour the Piglet persevered or if he didn't end up in my Walgreens Totino's pizza roll. (laughs) Who knows? Either way... No matter how runt-like we may feel as individuals, you really never know how other folks feel unless you choose to extend yourself. That's a tough race, but that's the only one worth finishing. Thank you all very much. Eric. We'll do a proper handshake later. Guys, I think we have time for one more story this half, but we're going to be back in this theater at, I think, 9.30 doing this again. But uh, for now, a little background on this next speaker. So when you guys all bought tickets, you might have seen that you could have submitted a story to to read here in front of everybody. And a few people did, and we chose a couple of them to come up and speak tonight. And the first of those brave individuals who is coming to you uh, for the first time is Robert Rawlings. Hello. So, yes, not a professional storyteller, nor part of the Adler, but rather an anthropologist. So my work has been with things like uh, the exclusion of women from local government in India, or currently with how to get more lower-income Chicagoans to be able to graduate college. And I had very little idea of what I was getting into as I submitted a story that was not intended to be funny. So... Uh, this is a story that recounts something of how I became a scientist. Uh, this story recounts what happens when a Christian elementary school collides with Discover Magazine. And also what happens when a sharp, hard object collides with a seven-year-old's face. This is a story I wouldn't tell for most of my life, uh, but feel just fine recounting now when someone asks how I got the scar on the left side of my chin. I grew up in the South. My parents didn't make a lot of money, but they sent me to a Christian elementary school for sake of both values and what they thought would be a sounder academic foundation. In fairness, I did learn to diagram sentences. I'm not quite sure what combination of factors set me apart from the other boys there. Maybe it was Transformers. I really thought the Decepticons and Autobots could resolve their scarce energon disputes diplomatically, and this game somehow did not go over well with other boys. Or maybe it's the way that I showed how I came from the other side of the tracks. Actual physical tracks. I lived by train tracks. Uh, On the rare times that I saw one of their houses, which felt like mansions to me. Or maybe it's the way I read all the time. That last was a feedback loop. The more I read, the less I fit in, and the more I prefer solitude with books over games with the other boys, especially since most of these games involved hitting me. Bullying is normal. Kids being little shits is normal. Adults are supposed to step in. Big people protect little people. It's their job. We're talking about elementary school teachers. It's their literal job. These adults didn't do that. They looked the other way. Part of it was that the institution was miserable about discipline in general, but another part was they didn't like me much. I asked questions, uncomfortable questions that came up thanks to all that reading, not to mention a dad who liked the sciences enough to subscribe to Discover magazine. Some went over without much incident, Why is it that all the inventions seem to come out of Europe and America? I asked about our history lesson once. Didn't China ever do anything? And I got an answer from the teacher that progress comes to those with God's blessing. Jesus, indeed. Other questions didn't work out so well. My second grade biology textbook was titled, if I remember correctly, Exploring God's World. Ooh, I actually checked. I Googled this stuff before coming to the story. I remembered correctly. Exploring God's World, the biology textbook. It had an insert of a girl. I think her name was Sally, talking to an evolutionist. Gee, Mr. Scientist, how do you date the fossils? Well, Sally, we date the fossils with the rocks. 
Gee, Mr. Scientist, how do you date the rocks? Well, Sally, we date the rocks with the fossils. Hmm. Sally was shown thinking. That sounds like thinking in a circle. I raised my hand. Apparently, I intoned. I was seven. I thought that word was really cool at that time. They don't date the same rocks with the same fossils. They use carbon dating. There was a pause. Then the teacher responded with something about the devil leading our thoughts astray. (laughs) During recess that week, several boys grabbed me. I'd prattled about things I'd read and discovered before, but this time I'd crossed a line. You can take your walls of galaxies and your fossils and your neurons, one of them said in my ear while they pushed me forward. By the way, if anyone wants to figure out the precise date of this, you can check when things were published in Discover Magazine. (sighs) And he may have finished with something like, and put them here, but I couldn't even tell you. They had slammed my face into a table with a jagged edge, and my ears were ringing. As I lay on my back, a piece of my chin dangled off my face by a thin bit of skin. I don't remember feeling pain or even upset, just dazed, seeing my mother arrive, hearing the teacher tell her that the injury had happened because I had been running in the gym. Adding insult to literal injury, she told my parents that there was a rule against running in the gym. Somehow, making up a rule that didn't exist was the part of the lie that bothered me most. But I wasn't in much position to disagree. I got sewn up back in the emergency room. The experience oddly hit me less than other bullying had. Felt normal or expected by that point. But here's the thing. The clever course of action after that would have been to shut up. To stop speaking up, stop raising my hand, stop asking questions, possibly to stop reading the stuff that helped me get in that kind of trouble to begin with. And I didn't. Clearly, whatever test scores had shown me to be a quick learner were utter bunk because I failed or refused to learn my lesson. When I finally left that place, the lesson I had learned, at least for a little while, was to feel ashamed about that part of myself. I didn't tell this story for a long time because I didn't really like that kid who kept asking questions and kept getting hit. Telling the story would be whining. But now... I think that kid's pretty cool. Now, I try to be as brave as that kid when there are forces that will punish questioning distortions or speaking from evidence. And I'm not even talking religion versus science here. Relationship between religion and science is much more complicated than that. But there are a lot of forces that will keep us from speaking the truth or punish us for it. And sometimes I think it's easier to be scared as an adult than as a kid. So I feel good about having spoken up back then. And I feel good when I do it now. Thank you so much, Robert. That was great. Man, that story, obviously fantastic. I'm going to be real. When I, when I read in your submission, Transformers, I'm like, yeah, this guy's in. That's easy call. Miss Katie Johnston Smith. Hi, I'm Katie Johnston-Smith, and I'm a member of the Nerdalogs. And like, hey, marriage equality is real, and it's great if you're like into marriage. Awesome. Uh, if you aren't about that marriage equality life, I'm not furious with you or anything, but I want to know why you care so much. I used to be where you are when I was a teen. I'm pretty sure I was super like emotionally and psychologically stunted. I tried to cling to very tightly to some notion that being attracted to and in love with someone of your same gender was some fire and brimstone hell sin. And I thought praying out the gay was a a thing that was real. Um, I didn't really super know any gay people and I didn't have any gay friends. Then, junior year of high school, I started running with a different circle, and I met a boy, and he asked me to prom, and I had a major crush on him. I'm pretty sure he tried to have a crush on me, and I couldn't. Um, I talked to mutual friends about it, and they said something along the lines of, he's gay and not out, or ready to be out, and I'm not like 
oh, any dude who doesn't like me is playing for the other team or whatever. Um, but like something clicked in my brain at that time. And I was like, oh, I know a gay person. And they're like, not like choosing to be gay. You know, they are like a person who is gay. Um, and I liked him and he was cool and he wasn't like really like resolutely choosing his attraction. It was a part of him that he couldn't change. And why should he change it? Because who fucking cares? And why did I have to be such a dick about it in the first place? Um, also, according to Facebook stalking research, this dude is now out and handsome and grounded and a yoga instructor in New York. So good for him. <laughs> After uh, dropping my, what are you doing? This is a sin. Get it together flag. I realized how much energy it took to carry around that opinion and go out of my way to let people know my feelings. And I felt lighter and more positive ever since. If you don't share my current mindset, um, also if you're unclear, it's like I'm okay and super into people loving who they are in love with. Um, I'm not going to yell at you and tell you you're a bigoted dummy because you're probably hearing a lot of that and people yelling at you takes a lot of their energy and it's negative and un unnecessary as well from them. Um, I'm going to encourage you to maybe talk to and get to know a queer person. Um, yeah. And uh, epilogue, I shared this story with the person who I wrote it about and uh, he then cried in his New York apartment on the floor for a while and uh, said that at the time that he asked me to prom and I tried to have and tr he tried to have a crush on me, he was realizing he was gay and he just didn't know the words yet to say it. So we were both going through this life defining growth and we didn't talk about it till 11 years afterwards. Um, and it's really important to remember that a person is a person is a person. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. A person is a person, unless they're a robot. Not that I hate robots. I'm just suspicious. <laughs> you never know where they're at. All right, guys. You can sing along. You and me, we used to be together every day. I'm losing my best friend I can't believe this could be the end It looks as though you're letting go And if it's real, well, I don't want to know
there? Your Stories is a proud member of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you like Your Stories, you might also try Improvised Star Trek. Improvised Star Trek is an improvised parody of Star Trek featuring the adventures of the crew of the USS Sisyphus, a slightly less enterprising starship. You can catch up with the show at TheImprovisedStarTrek.com. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.